Good afternoon. I'd like to thank Dr. Manga and the AUA for inviting me to give the summary on female urology and urinary incontinence. These are my disclosures. So we did have a very uh, busy time here with female urology and urinary incontinence at this uh, year's AUA. However, my review really includes uh, the review of 125 submissions, which included 116 abstracts and nine videos. The summary is, uh, is categorized in regards to general uh, themes, including stress incontinence, prolapse, overactive bladder, and complex patients. Several submissions looked at the treatment trends for stress urinary incontinence as they related to recent regulatory warnings from governmental associations. <clears throat> the first paper was submitted by the group from Toronto where they looked at the 22-year uh, population level trends for the treatment of stress urinary incontinence. They found that between the years of 2000 and 2009, specifically before the regulatory warnings from uh, Health Canada and the uh, US uh, FDA, they found the greatest increase in stress incontinence procedures from 95 to 147 per 100,000 persons. This increase was primarily due to increased utilization of synthetic slings, and during that same interval, the use of urethral bulking agents, pubovaginal slings, and urethropexies declined. When they looked more closely at the trends after the regulatory warnings, specifically between the years 2009 and 2016, they found that the overall number of stress incontinence procedures declined from 147 to 64 per 100,000 persons. This decline was due not only to the decrease in utilization of synthetic slings, but due to the decrease in all procedures for stress incontinence. The authors therefore concluded that there were many patients living with their stress incontinence symptoms in foregoing treatment. Mid-urethral slings were initially introduced due to the presumed uh, improvement in efficacy as well as a decrease in morbidity. Uh, Jerry McGuire, who uh, is a huge proponent of, of autologous fascial slings, decided to look at the complications reported in the literature over the, uh, approximately a 40-year span, specifically 1978 to 2017. This review included 61 articles that looked at the safety of autologous fascial pubovaginal slings versus those of synthetic mid-urethral slings. Patients had a mean follow-up of 12 to 190 months. The data did not show a high rate of serious complications associated with autologous fascial pubovaginal slings. In fact, fascial slings had a higher rate of wound complications only. Mid-urethral slings had a higher rate of erosion, refractory pelvic pain, bowel perforation, and de novo OAB symptoms. Bladder perforation and urethral obstruction, surprisingly, were reported equally in both procedures. <clears throat> the group from Vanderbilt did a more contemporary review regarding the complications associated with autologous rectal fascial pubovaginal slings. They looked at a contemporary span series spanning 2006 to 2016 in 325 patients with a mean age of 56. Of 98 patients, 115 complications were reported. Again, wound complications, including seroma, hematoma, and dehiscence, were reported in 13.2% of patients. Urinary retention was reported in 11.7% of patients. Those with complications were most likely to have had prior stress incontinence surgery and chronic preoperative pain syndromes. There was no difference in age, body mass index, prior radiation, immunosuppression, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, or pulmonary comorbidities. 
Many patients who undergo mid-urethral slings unfortunately do encounter complications and require some type of revision. As clinicians, we often ask ourselves and our patients often ask of us, will they improve after some type of mid-urethral sling revision? One group looked at 432 patients retrospectively with a 14-month follow-up, and these patients presented with very complex presentations, either exposure or erosion, pain or dyspareunia, incontinence, and bladder outlet obstruction. Most of these patients had at least two of the four presentations. After mid-urethral sling uh, revision, only 70% uh, did not require a second procedure. And there were significant decrease in the number of patients reporting pain and dyspareunia, incontinence. In addition, there was significant improvement in post-void residual volumes and number of pads used. Another group looked at the occurrence of urinary incontinence following uh, sling revision for specifically for the indications of pelvic or perineal pain. They reviewed 82 patients with 8.4 months of follow-up. 56% of patients had recurrent urinary incontinence. However, this was found to be mild in, in only 32.6, or I'm sorry, 32.6% did not require repeat surgery. 41% of those with recurrent urinary incontinence did require repeat surgery. The group from UCLA sought to identify risk factors for those patients undergoing mid-urethral sling revision and may require additional stress incontinence surgery. They retrospectively reviewed 233 cases with 23.5 months of follow-up. 49% of their patients required repeat surgery for stress incontinence. Risk factors for all patients, including increasing time to mid-urethral sling excision, as well as total mid-urethral sling excision as opposed to partial. In addition, patients who were more likely to require repeat stress incontinence surgery demonstrated stress incontinence on preoperative urodynamics. For all patients in subgroups analyzed, the following factors were not predictors of repeat stress incontinence surgery. Age, vaginal parity, prior hysterectomy, smoking status, type of mid-urethral sling uh, excised, history and type of, of prior mid-urethral sling excision, as well as the location of the mid-urethral sling along the urethra at the time of excision. Now moving on to prolapse. Many patients with pelvic organ prolapse also have preoperative urinary dysfunction. Again, patients ask, will their symptoms improve following prolapse reduction? A group from Italy looked at 34 patients who presented with stage three to four pelvic organ prolapse and had a follow-up of 24 months. There was statistically significant improvement in urgency and voiding dysfunction symptoms. In addition, there was objective improvement in maximum flow rate, as well as a decrease in maximum detrusive pressure. Additionally, bladder outlet obstruction resolved in 11 of 15 patients. The group from Stanford also looked at the natural history of voiding efficiency following correction of partial bladder outlet obstruction in women with prolapse. This was an award-winning poster in this section. They looked at voiding efficiency defined as voided volume over capacity and or post-void residual volume and compared those to preoperative urodynamic parameters. 266 patients were evaluated. They found that bladder outlet index and bladder outlet obstruction index and PDEC Qmax were poorly predictive of voiding efficiency and or post-void residual volume following prolapse surgery. In addition, women with bladder Contractility index less than 60, capacity greater than 600 cc's, or post-void residual volume greater than 200 cc's are at risk of worsening voiding efficiency and or PVR following prolapse repair. 
This information will certainly help us to counsel our patients as they embark on prolapse reduction. Lastly, patients oftentimes require prolapse mesh removal and want to know, again, will they require repeat surgery? There was a retrospective review of patients undergoing prolapse mesh removal from 2009 to 2016. They examined symptom and pain resolution and recurrent prolapse after mesh removal. 37 patients underwent complete mesh removal and 35 underwent partial removal. Pain and dyspareunia were the presenting symptom in 79% of the patients. There was no significant difference in resolution of pain in those with complete versus partial prolapse mesh removal. However, 35% with complete removal developed recurrent prolapse, whereas only 15% with partial removal developed pro recurrent prolapse. And overall, 27% of patients required repeat reconstructive procedures after mesh removal. We're going to move on to the association of metabolic syndromes and overactive bladder. Uh, there was a group, Judy, Judy Choi, looked at the impact of lifetime obesity on urinary incontinence in women participating in the Women's Health Initiative. This included 15,420 women who developed urinary incontinence, I'm sorry, who developed obesity over the course of their lifetime. The number of obese or overweight years was associated with an increased risk of developing in, in urinary incontinence and severity of incontinence postmenopausally. In addition, the group looked at relationship between metabolic factors, urinary incontinence, and overactive bladder in men and women as part of the LEARN observational cohort study. After review of 920 patients, central obesity was associated with the presence of any urinary incontinence and the presence of overactive bladder. Moving on to third-line therapies for overactive bladder. We often think of patients being poorly compliant with oral agents for this disease. However, one study was prevent, presented showing that patients have poor compliance with repeat Botox injections. Of 175 patients uh, studied, 86% had significant improvement after their first injection, how only however, only 50% returned for a second injection. Patients with multiple injections had more symptomatic improvement, as well as a preoperative diagnosis of neurologic disorders. There was no significant difference in age, gender, body mass index, or distance from clinic. Despite improvement, after Botox injection, compliance for subsequent injections is low. Many patients who undergo repeat Botox injections also want to know about their outcome and risks associated with subsequent injections. Gary Lamack conducted a post hoc analysis of pooled placebo controlled trials to evaluate the efficacy, quality of life, and risk of CIC following reinjection with 100 units. After first injection 12 weeks, 5.3% required uh, clean gym and catheterization. After a second injection, only 3.6% required intermittent catheterization after 12 weeks. And only 1.7% of patients required clean intermittent catheterization after first and second injections. Therefore, there was no increased risk of CIC with reinjection, and Botox 100 units improved urinary symptoms and quality of life. We also want to look at OAB treatment in our most difficult patients, specifically those that are older and may be more susceptible to side effects associated with oral therapies. The group from uh, Case Western did a retrospective series looking at 130 patients who were octogenarians and nanogenarians and compared these to a younger cohort, cohort and found that urinary retention occurred, occurred in the older population at 11. 11% versus 4% in the younger cohort. 
UTIs were also not statistically significantly different, with 6.5% occurring in the elder population versus 7.6% in the younger. There was no difference reported in satisfaction. Therefore, they concluded that Botox injections are safe and effective in the elderly population. Lastly, the uh, group from Virginia Mason looked at the complex patients who present with detrusor hyperactivity and impaired contractility, and these patients were found to have significant improvement after sacral neuromodulation with greater than 50% improvement in subjective symptoms as well as post-void residual volumes declining to less than 100 cc's. The overall success rate was 80%. And lastly, we looked at the group of patients who have urinary incontinence and have existing suprapubic tube catheters or have concomitant placement of suprapubic tube catheters at the time of Botox injection. These patients were assessed at 30 days for urinary tract infections, bleeding, hospitalizations, and um, catheter dysfunction. 50%, 50 patients were evaluated, 43% of them were female. The indications for SP tube insertion were neurogenic bladder in 86% and urinary incontinence in 52%. Complications were seen in 10%, the most common being urinary tract infection and hematuria. However, there was subjective improvement in 88%, and these patients came back for subsequent injections with the mean number of Botox treatments being 3.26. Therefore, Botox is efficacious and may be considered for this group of patients. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Downs and Dr. Flanagan, um, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. The, uh, a little different from the rest of the presenters, I, I, I had the entire conference to look at because everything we do as urologists, we try to do with regards to patient safety. So I tried to pick out a few articles that highlighted uh, certain aspects related to quality improvement and patient safety. In the, in the area of access to care, I, I really thought that that was pertinent to quality improvement, prevention, x-ray imaging, pain management, opioids, antibiotics, and perioperative care and complications. So I'll proceed with just a few articles. Again, there were multiple articles that could have been used for this purpose. One of which is related to uh, an article identifying true barriers to medication availability in rural and low-income areas. The the authors looked at over a thousand, uh, over a thousand pharmacies that were, that were used for dispensing medications and compared them in high income areas and low income areas and looked at differences. And what they were able to show was that there, there, there were some differences in high income and low income areas especially related to availability of 24-hour pharmacy. Interestingly enough, access to opioids was not limited, and access to compounding was not limited. The University of Michigan did a very interesting study that was presented at the R. Frank Jones Urological Society related to a kidney allocation system that was promoted to improve the uh, allocation of renal transplantation for African Americans, as you can see on this slide, which have an adverse disparity related to chronic kidney disease. Similarly, if you look at 33% versus 13%, have an adverse disparity related to being on the transplant waiting list. 
So what they were able to do was to adjust the way in which allocation was performed to improve access to uh, two African Americans that had disparate uh, outcomes related to waiting for renal transplantation. And that was really the key takeaway. Uh, ultimately, an additional takeaway was that there really need to be greater efforts from multiple decision makers, including government advocacy, research funding, and physician behavior, behavior to maximally impact racial disparity related to the use of transplantation in the management of end-stage renal disease. Now as we move on to prevention, there was an interesting article that looked at the use of cranberry uh, as, a, as a supplement to try to prevent recurrent urinary tract infections. This was looked at with the use of no cranberry versus low dose cranberry versus higher dose cranberry. And ultimately, they were able to show not only uh, a decrease in the incidence of urinary tract infections, but an overall decrease in costs related to, to a general practitioner visits, uh, as well as to laboratory testing. Um, so this does raise a takeaway about the potential use of cranberries supplements to decrease urinary tract infection, as well as the benefit on a cost perspective. As we move on, this was a very interesting article that looked at the evaluation and risk of benefits of CT urography for assessment of gross hematuria. Uh, as you can see from the, from the two columns, this was data related to the ability to diagnose upper, upper tract urinary cancer and renal cell cancer. Um, the sensitivity of renal ultrasound was 77% and 82% respectively. This was the increase dose related to CT imaging, and then they actually tried to extrapolate that to the risk of developing malignancy related to CT imaging. Uh, when they did that, they actually created a threshold for loss of life expectancy related to that increased risk for developing malignancy from radiation. The study really provided further support to the use of renal ultrasound for evaluation of hematuria in low-risk patients as opposed to CT imaging, and it provided some insight into possible greater adverse impact to patient safety due to the increased risk of CT-induced radiation being greater than the risk of missed tumor from ultrasound. One thing that's, uh, uh, that's becoming important to, to everyone, uh, urologists, as well as the entire society is, is the use of opioids. And this was a very important study that looked at uh, management of renal colic using Ketorolac and its impact on length of stay and, and risk of admission to the hospital. And they were able to show a benefit uh, for the use of Ketorolac, as you can see from the odds ratio related to its use. And ultimately, uh, a smaller percentage of patients had to be exposed to narcotics. And this really provides support for the use of Ketorolac to treat renal colic and the benefit of decreased opiate use. Similarly, when we look at, at opioid prescribing, uh, this, was a, this was a very extensive article that looked at over 877 procedures and how 
opiates were prescribed for post-operative pain management. What you can see is, with this blue line, uh, the average number of unused opioid, opioid uh, prescriptions. So it, 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 it really stretched from lower risk to higher risk or more major procedures uh, with all showing an excess amount of unused opioids. So this, this showed an, an over-prescribing of the, the, uh, the dispensed amount of opioids for both minor and major surgery. Urologists really need to consider both non-narcotic options for pain and prescribe smaller volumes when narcotics are needed. And just a side note, there's an upcoming AUA Fall Quality Summit that's going to address opioid prescribing by urologists in more detail and opportunities for improvement. This is a study that's switching over to the antibiotic part of what I wanted to highlight that looked at the, that looked at the prescribing of antibiotics as prophylaxis for both cystoscopy and vasectomy. And you can see that between 2009 and 2015, there was a significant increase in the use of, of antibiotic prophylaxis. And it really highlights uh, an opportunity for better stewardship and antibiotic use and better guidance uh, and, and better uh, guideline compliance. This study looked at the use of cefazolin as a potential antibiotic for prophylaxis and endourologic procedures. Um, it was compared to Cipro and trimethoprim sulfa, and it was really able to show that it worked well uh, as a prophylactic alternative, especially in facilities that have quinolone and, and trimethoprim sulfa uh, resistance. It should be considered as it does have significant efficacy. This looked at uh, this was a, um, a study out of China that looked at antibiotic prophylaxis for ureteroscopy and the risk of developing perioperative infections. And they were able to show a benefit uh, with low incidence of infections in patients who started with sterile urine. They also showed a difference in the risk of developing infection based on the stone burden. And ultimately, the takeaway is that there's a decreased risk if we can start with sterile urine, and there's an increased risk of an infection with high stone burden. This is an important article that looked at the so-called July effect uh, at multiple institutions uh, where there's previously been thought that there was an increased risk of complications for major and minor procedures. They looked at multiple different types of procedures, but ultimately, they were able to show that there really wasn't a difference in July, August, and April, May, or at least an increased incidence of complications related to that. The takeaway from that was that residents need proper supervision throughout the year, and when they are supervised, there's really no July impact. Uh, this looked at the feasibility of uh, doing major surgery on Jehovah's Witnesses with controlling for uh, issues related to blood loss. They looked at low-risk, intermediate-risk, and high-risk procedures, and they were able to show that only one patient actually needed a cell saver, and they did not have, access, they did not have excessive complications related to operating on this uh, concerning population. And it really, the takeaways related to this was, were that 
in, a, in centers that appropriately plan for managing patients having major surgery, uh, that it can be performed uh, without the need for blood transfusion, and ultimately maybe all centers need to look at the evaluation of transfusion thresholds and the management to decrease the need for blood transfusion. This study showed how there's a declining incidence of complications related to da Vinci robotic surgery. You can see from the purple line that it is getting smaller, specifically in 2015 and 16. And the takeaways are that injuries and deaths related to robotic surgery are decreasing with time and efforts at implementation uh, of multiple innovations and training that may be driving the benefit. One thing I wanted to close with is a case that looked at what happens with um, urology in terms of patient safety and why it's important that we keep that in mind. Uh, this was a case that was presented in, in, the, uh, in, the, legal, in the legal form. Uh, this was a patient who underwent a transferred ultrasound guided prostate biopsy who had a fleet cinema, had antibiotics, and had a 12-core biopsy and ultimately post-course contacted the urologist with a low-grade fever and some discomfort, was given instructions to take ibuprofen and go to the emergency room, and went to the emergency room several hours later, ultimately was febrile tachycardic hypotensive, had a Foley catheter placed, had culture sent, but ultimately went into sepsis and had to be resuscitated. Uh, after resuscitation, he actually passed away. Um, the only reason I, I raised this particular case is that uh, it shows that there's continued opportunity for us to continue examine what we're doing. Uh, this patient had a biopsy for what a lot of people would say is low-risk disease. Uh, he had antibiotics, but we need to consider all of these issues that these these presented highlights showed related to trying to improve patient safety. We need to have careful selection for intervention. We need to consider prevention for complications, antibiotic pro prophylaxis, perioperative care, and management of complications. The uh, take home is related to this. Access remains important. Urologic care needs to be evidence-based. It needs to be empathic. And, it, and we need to be committed to ongoing self-evaluation for improvement. Thank you.